I killed a guy today. Ty looked away from the mundane sitcom they had been watching and stared at her girlfriend, Lee, slack-jawed. Was she serious? Ty didn't want to think it was possible. In fact, Ty didn't want to think about it at all. She stayed silent, waiting to see if Lee would say something else. She didn't. Ty decided she had misheard her or maybe imagined the whole thing and eventually went back to watching TV. But a few weeks later, it was impossible to ignore the news stories. The scenes of the grass where the man's body was found. The carpet that covered his decomposing corpse. The picture of his car. The car that looked an awful lot like the one Lee had come home in that day that Ty tried to forget. I'm Laura. I'm here with my best friend Marina. And this is Grim. took me on a journey right out the gates yeah yep. i could just picture being in that living room watching mm-hmm. that sitcom and having yeah. someone turn to me casually and be like i killed someone mm-hmm. be like exactly. that's neat what'd you have for dinner <laughs> exactly <laughs> i think that's kind of how it went so wow it'll be this is gonna be a ride and it, it you know this was one of those stories i don't know if this happens to you where i spent so long researching it that getting here to record i'm like oh you don't even need to know all the details but I know all of them. I've been living mm. them, reading this and They're writing this, brain. but for you, it will all be new and interesting. It's going to be so interesting. <laughs> I'm excited. Well, before we get into it, our favorite segment, Patreon shout outs. Woo! We have five today. Guys, Cinco. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much to Ava T. Yeah, Woo, Ava, Ava T. We, we love, love you. you. Thank you. Christina W. Woo! Christina, Christina, we love you. We love you. Nicole R. Nicole Woo. R, you're the best. Woo. Thank you, we Nicole. Love you. We love you. Angelina M. Angelina Woo. M, Angelina. you're the best. We Woo. love you. We love you. And Donna B. Donna B. Woo. Woo. We love you. We love you. Seriously, thank you. We love you. Guys, I was excited in two languages. <laughs> That's how excited I was. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, on to much darker things. Okay. Um, I have to start this out with a trigger warning. There are many mentions of rape in this show, so please, if that is not something you want to listen to, this would be the time to shut us off. We love you anyway. Um, I also want to give a big shout out to the book I read, Lethal Intent by Susan Russell. Um, It is 600 pages of every single detail ever needed to know about this case. Um, Just a quick casual read. Yes. And it really, really tickled my brain because I always want to know every single detail about every case. It wasn't Um, already on your bookshelf? Surprisingly, no. Okay. Um, Reserved for a toy box. And uh, Night Stalker I have Mm, on my my bookshelf as well. Um, That'll be be another one. Oh, Eddie Ramirez. That's a good one. Mm. It's a good one. Um, so for that reason, because I have no ability to edit myself, this is going to be two parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I am going to start with a, a pretty deep dive on um, on our main our main girl here, and uh, and then we'll get into a few other interesting details, and then it'll be another week. Are they interesting? They're super interesting. Are you going to tell the gremlins who we're talking about today? I guess. Okay. 
I'm talking about Eileen Carol Warnos. Oh, so damn. she, I, I won't say any more about that. You'll learn a whole bunch about her, but that is her name. She is also known as the, uh, what is she known as? The damsel not in distress. <laughs> she, although she is in distress. So perhaps the da- damsel of death, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. All right. So Eileen was born on February 29th, 1956. Ooh, leap, leap. Day. Leap, leap day. day. Leap yes. day year, baby. Leap day on a leap year. Okay. And it was actually fitting that that was her birthday because her her theme of her life was abandonment. Whether she mm. was the one being abandoned or causing the abandonment, definitely a theme in her life. So it just felt fitting that her birthday was quote unquote skipped every three years out of four. Yeah. So that'll do something to a person. Exactly. Birthdays are very important. Yes. And that was the only history I was going to give you. We'll get right into the murders. I'm just kidding. Okay. So she actually was 12 (laughs) at the time of the murders. (laughs) They're actually, when she was 12, she said kids made fun of her and said she was only three. Oh yeah. It was was tough. I was going to say, I take my joke back, but no, it's out there. It's It's in the universe world. So Eileen was born to her mother, Diane, and father, Leo Pittman. Although they didn't raise her, Diane was just 16 and Leo was in jail when Eileen was born. Okay. They lived in a small home in Troy, Michigan, just north of Detroit. Leo himself was, was abandoned by his biological parents, Lorraine and Arthur. When Leo was five, his paternal grandparents, Ida and Leo, adopted him and his younger sister, Nancy. Sadly, their other sister, Patsy, was adopted by another family. Oh. Which made me sad. His grandparents attempted to establish a loving, nurturing childhood, but this soon turned him into a full-blown spoiled brat. Oh, boy. To say the least. Leo ruled the roost in his house with his grandmother doting on him and no one ever being able to tell him no. It seems he exercised this arrogance outside of his home as well, having lost his virginity at 10 to a woman many years his senior. Mm, That's very young. Yeah. Completely inappropriately young. Yes. Mm. Now, if his grandmother did ever try to put her foot down, whether to reprimand him about school or otherwise, Leo would hit her. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think his grandparents were in denial, excusing his behavior as a result of his poor upbringing before they adopted him, but... He was downright abusive. He met Diane on one of his few times actually making it on the, on the bus to school. Diane came from essentially the opposite type of household. Though her mother, Britta, was caring, her father, Lowry, was incredibly strict. And that's spelled L-A-U-R-I. They said people in the neighborhood called him Larry, but that's not his name. So I'm going to call Lowry? Him. I think so. I, my pronunciation might not be perfect. Okay. Um, but I am attempting. So, for example, about how strict he was, Diane was allowed to go into town to the movies with a girlfriend, but not to a basketball game, regardless of who she went with, I guess because of who was there and who she might see. But she can go to the movies? Apparently. In the dark? Apparently. Unsupervised? It was very irrational. Okay. She was not allowed to date and would often be grounded for the most mundane reasons, anything to keep her under Lowry's roof. Better under his roof than in his dungeon. (laughs) True. Which is... (laughs) Still kind of under the roof, but really far down under it. (laughs) Technically, yes. Yeah. Now, (laughs) despite all of that, I'm sure it was quite the shock when Diane and Leo eloped on June 3rd, 1954, when Diane was only 14 and Leo was 17. Wow. I'm surprised that they could get married that young. What year was this? So this was 54. Okay. But they managed to accomplish that, I guess, because Leo's grandmother granted them permission or permission on their behalf. 
And they lied about their ages because I guess you could just do that. You just didn't have to have a, a license. They said they were both over 18. It was like in the 50s, were there permission slips to get married? I, I think, you, I, don't, I don't know. Parental don't know. consent? I'm sure it's a thing. But, I think so. Yeah. Uh, actually, maybe not anymore. I don't know. I don't know. But they managed to do it and they were very young. Um, the next year, Diane and Leo welcomed a baby boy, Keith, on March 14th. And if Diane thought she was escaping a controlling man, she was wrong. She was just trading out Lowry for Leo. Well, Leo was a dick. Awful, to say the least. Like, worse yeah. than Lowry. Leo was incredibly jealous and authoritarian. Not totally surprising, given how he grew up. Of course, he nobody ever told him no. But he really took it to an extreme with his complete reign over Diane. She was hardly allowed to interact with anyone other than Leo, to the point where she was forbidden to answer the phone or the door. And she had to keep the curtains drawn so no one could see inside. On the rare occasion she left the house, Leo refused to allow her to wear makeup. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. So kind of a dungeon, just upstairs. Yeah. I, yeah. I, it's unfathomable, that type of controlling situation. <laughs> yeah, this, this one's a little more fathomable. I know. Yeah. I could fathom it. <laughs> but even when she did follow his rules, he beat her almost daily. Just to remind her what he could do. So fucked up. Yeah. Not, not great. But despite all of that, Diane was soon pregnant again. It seemed like Diane had no way out, but in the summer of 1955, Leo was arrested for stealing a car. And instead of going to jail, he chose to go to the army because I guess that was the way you could get out of it. Okay. So Diane took this opportunity to gather the confidence to leave him with the divorce becoming final on November 14th, 1955. Good for her. Yes. She began her new life with 18 month old Keith and his infant sister, Eileen. She moved in with two friends who were generous enough not only to allow them to stay there, but to help watch the kids. Diane promptly repaid them by leaving for dinner one night and never returning. <laughs> Literally just ran out for dinner, asked them to watch the kids, and did not return. Okay. She was like, I have to go get cigarettes, watch my kids. Basically. Bye. Yes. And her poor friend, Marge, gave it a week hoping like maybe Diane would return. Maybe something had happened. She had gone somewhere and would come back because she was afraid to Marge was afraid to bring the kids to Lowry and Britta right. knowing that they were strict and not happy. But um, at some point she kind of had to address it. So she did bring Keith and Eileen to Diane's parents. I feel really bad for the kids, but on the other hand, mm -hmm. I am proud of a parent that can just admit to themselves that they're not a parent. She obviously didn't go about it the right way, but it's probably Correct. better for kids to not be someone with someone that doesn't want oh, for you. Sure. And was so young. Not that you can't right. be a great parent young, yeah. but I'm sure she just had no... Right. If you're young and yeah. don't want them, exactly. then you have a situation where they're left alone babysitting themselves at like five and four mm -hmm. while you're at a club or something. And Bingo. Yeah. So Diane did eventually write to her father and ask them to adopt the children. Um, fortunately, she really had gone away on her own. She was not in a dungeon anywhere. Yeah, I don't no. like that. I didn't no. like that parallel. No, no. Eventually, though, Diane did try to return to her parents' house, but couldn't close the rift with her mother. So she did come back to try to be in the kids' lives. But it seemed like Britta was holding a grudge against Diane for abandoning her children, mm. which seems kind of fair. She could be heard telling uh, Laurie that, Diane beat the kids, even though that wasn't true. So it seemed like she was really, Britta was just really mad with Diane. Did she really need to make up something else? Like, isn't it enough to just leave your kids for dinner and never come back? I think so. But 
It's possible that Britta wasn't actually mad at Diane and was trying to protect her and get her out of the house because in later interviews, Diane alluded to having trouble with Britta once Diane had hit puberty, which was also the time that Lowry was giving her what she later acknowledged was inappropriate attention. Oh, no. Yeah. So it's hard to confirm anything. There's not too much information, despite it being in the 600-page book, Um, (laughs) but it it seemed like there might have been something there. What a dysfunctional family. Absolutely. So again, Diane got out of Dodge, this time leaving Keith and Eileen with her aunt and uncle. Once again, she wrote to her parents begging them to adopt Keith and Eileen, and this time they did. And Diane did not come back for another 13 years. Wow. As for Eileen's father, even after he returned from the service, Leo just accepted that his wife left him. He might have even been glad to just be done with them. He continued his life of crime, growing more and more aggressive. In 1962, while Eileen was beginning to show her personality to the dismay of her grandparents, Leo and his new wife and infant children had fled a thousand miles away to Wichita, Kansas. Leo had violated his parole and was on the run, but he would soon give in to much worse temptations. Buckle up. Because this is a blood and feathers roller coaster ride. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> and we haven't even talked really about Eileen, but this no. is the family that she's come from. We haven't. Well, we already know Leo is a giant pile of turds. Yeah, so. you're going to want to light those turds on fire. Okay. On the afternoon of Friday, November 23rd, 1962. And what do we say about whenever we say a specific date? What time was it? Was it 2.47? It was, it was during the day. Okay. Leo spotted his target. He began talking to a group of young children, taking a particular interest in one of the seven-year-old girls. No. I know. He lured her away from the others, asking if she wanted to see his pony, and she went willingly. No. He drove her a couple of miles away to a remote location where he brutally raped her and then dropped her back off in front of the school, threatening to kill her and her family if she told anyone. Thankfully, she was brave enough to tell her grandmother the minute she was home, and she was soon driven to the hospital to be examined. Despite her extreme trauma, this little girl was amazing. She was able to provide an excellent description of her attacker, as well as the pattern of the cloth on the seats of the car. You go, girl. Uh Uh-huh. So armed with this evidence, police soon identified and arrested Leo. Good. Fuck him. He confessed, and he was put in jail. But... Amazingly, while he was awaiting trial, he escaped from prison just a few months later and managed to get all the way back up to Michigan. Okay. He was arrested again shortly after. Mm -hmm. Yep. But then found innocent by reason of insanity and put in a mental institution. Mm -hmm. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't peg him as someone that would be considered insane. No, and that was on his unrelated charge. That was for the, when he was arrested again, it was unrelated to what happened in Kansas. Okay. He stayed there for three years until the people in Wichita were able to compile enough paperwork and get the right signatures or whatever to bring him to trial. On January 15th, 1966, a jury took just four hours to find him guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison. Good. That's where he belongs. Yes. And at 30 years old, Leo was looking at a lot of years behind bars. That's a, that's a lot. And apparently too many for his liking. Just three years later, he hanged himself in his cell, dying on January 30th, 1969. It's the coward's way out after Absolutely. you did that to a seven-year-old. Absolutely. So that's just a little about uh, Eileen's birth parents. Okay. Mm-hmm. Really setting the scene there. Really setting the stage yeah. for a successful yeah. adult life out of yeah. Eileen, right? And then she got her master's degree and um, <laughs> went to Harvard. Anyway. Um, <laughs> just kidding. 
So with her parents' incredibly troubled lives, one would think, as you said earlier, that Eileen being adopted by her grandparents might have been a good thing. Maybe it was better than being raised by Diane and Leo, but it was not a happy, loving home. I think she was doomed, though, because the grandparents also raised one of her biological parents. So you're kind of hit here. Exactly. Yep. So I'll tell you a little bit about Lowry and Britta. Um, So Britta, whose full name was actually Eileen Britta, Mm -hmm. likely met through the tight-knit Scandinavian community. Both Britta and Lowry's parents were born in Finland, and the couple moved to the Rochester area, which is, again, just north of Detroit, in 1936. Britta stayed home while Lowry worked a variety of mechanic jobs in the many automobile and tire factories in the state. Lowry was a tough man. He was respected by his neighbors, but that respect often blurred with fear and distaste. So they didn't really like him. They kind of kept him at a distance. I can relate. (laughs) Well, he harbored resentment toward basically everyone. It seemed like he was just angry at life itself. His yelling could be heard throughout the neighborhood. Wow. And this hatred and subsequent yelling was exacerbated by his heavy drinking. Oh, no. Yeah. He loved wine. Now, who doesn't? Okay. All right. Right. But he would hide away a bottle at work, at home, in the car, and then often drink all three of them in the day. You're not supposed to do that? (laughs) Shit. Yeah. You just have all three at home. Oh, okay. All right. Mm -hmm. We're good. We're good We just don't want drinking and driving. Okay. We're good. Now, being drunk turned his yelling from go mow the lawn to you're a worthless piece of shit. So he got very verbally abusive when he was drinking. See, I can't stand a belligerent drunk because I go the other way. Mm. I make the best friends in like a bar bathroom. Like the more I drink, like let's all, I always want to sing karaoke when I'm drinking. (laughs) Does that surprise you, dear listeners? (laughs) It shouldn't. It shouldn't come as a surprise. Absolutely not. I saw a TikTok, of course, my favorite thing, but I saw one about the energy that girls' bathrooms have in a club. So, and I think a lot of our listeners are female, so I think they may know there's just nothing more positive. Everybody should look in the mirror and talk to themselves (laughs) the way a drunk girl in a club bathroom would talk to you. Yes. Like, girl, your hair looks so good. That outfit is fierce. Love that lipstick. Go get it. You go slay. (laughs) Every day you should have that energy. I think that's great. You could be a motivational speaker. That's my next calling. Okay, perfect. Larry could not. No, no, no. He was not practiced in the ways of kindness. Mm -hmm. Um, His favorite tool besides his voice was a leather belt, which he kept easily accessible hanging on the back of his bedroom door. Britta, on the other hand, possessed the only kind of demeanor one could have with Laurie. She was just quiet and deferent. Just let him do his thing. Okay. Together, the couple had three children, the oldest, Barry, and then Diane, of course, and Lori. Not to be confused with Lowry. <laughs> Spelled differently. Yep. Barry was the favorite, maybe because he was the only boy, but because he was the oldest, it created a vacuum in the house when he left for the Air Force in 1967. Diane had already abandoned her children and the family by this time, leaving just Lori as a pseudo-sibling for Eileen and Keith. What was the age disparity between them? Only Do you know? a couple years. Oh, okay. Very, so they actually didn't know. Um, Eileen and Keith did not know that they that Lowry and Britta were their grandparents oh, for quite a while. Maybe mm-hmm. that's better for them? Um, I can There's see really that. not much better for them in this, in this yeah. case. I can see that psychologically yeah. going two ways, though. Handled appropriately. It, I'm sure it was fine. Uh, handled the way that it was handled with this, not so much. Okay. No. And worse, there was a distinction in the treatment from Lowry and Britta to from Lori. These names are hard. But from Lori to Keith and Eileen, um, 
because Lori described her father as strict, but not abnormally so, just strict, whereas Eileen told a lot of tales of physical and verbal abuse. So it seemed like they were treated differently as well. Oh, that's not nice. No. Now, despite or maybe in spite of Lori's strictness, Eileen and Keith both got into trouble throughout their childhood. Keith seemed to limit his troublemaking to the typical realm of young boys, although one incident quickly became more serious. When Keith was just 10, he got his hands on some gasoline and oil and set it on fire on the ground. Eileen, who was nine and loved copying her big brother, attempted the same thing but used too much gasoline. The flames caught her hair and face, burning her so badly she ended up in the hospital for several days, leaving scars. Oh, mm-hmm. I did not know that. Mm. That's the only fact that you didn't know (laughs) that I've told you so far. Actually, one part. I take it back. I haven't known anything. I just felt the need to express my lack of knowledge on that one point. Okay. I was like, you knew about Diane and Leo and and the grandparents. And Lowry and and Lori and Barry. Yeah. No, I had that all under my tube, but I did not know about the fire on the lawn. (laughs) Now I'm up to speed. Now you're good. So we're good if you're enjoying Grim. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, that was not Eileen's last brush with fire, literally or figuratively. She got herself in a lot of trouble, including setting toilet paper on fire in the school bathroom. And she also did a lot of shoplifting. Now that, as I said, there seemed a natural division between Lowry and Britta's treatment of their quote unquote real children as compared to Eileen and Keith. Mm. When the siblings got themselves into that kind of trouble, their grandparents would yell at them and the corporal, corporal punishment escalated but to no avail and the ultimate result was that the family just avoided them and left them to their own devices so they they would get yelled at and hit and then when they wouldn't change they just ignored them i think that's a terrible strategy but sometimes that's what i do with my toddler (laughs) you You just remove them them. no 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 no. (laughs) when 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 they just won't listen to me i remove myself from the situation because there's no winning i don't think that that was the thought process probably not and they're also not Mm -hmm. toddlers but i'm just saying like Mm -hmm. in that moment when you were explaining them not listening at all i was like man pick up pick up your toys you feel for laura and britta on this one (laughs) pick up your toys (laughs) and also stop setting the lawn on fire that's fair is that so much to ask toddlers are tough (laughs) (laughs) so uh i i would say for between laurie and her niece and nephew is what they really were That was not the only thing that drove the wedge between them. Eileen was really difficult. So even if it weren't for that, or maybe it's because of that, um, even from a young age, many many people referred to her as Jekyll and Hyde because one minute she could be sweet and quiet and then thrown into a rage the next. She was a Sour Patch Kid. Yes. (laughs) Sweet. What is it? Sour on the outside, sweet on the inside? Yeah. Or first first they're sour, then they're sweet. I think it's the opposite. I think it's like you look at it and you think, oh, that's a Sour Patch Kid, and then it kills you. (laughs) So as a result of that, Eileen really had just few friends. Deciding to do something about that, at the shocking age of just 11, Eileen had figured out that she could hold some sort of power over her peers, at least the male ones. What likely began as, I'll let you touch my boob if you give me something, quickly evolved into her trading sexual activities for things she wanted. Oh my gosh. Tangibly money, cigarettes, beer, drugs, but also power in some twisted form of popularity. By the time she was 12 or 13, she had a system down. Word had definitely gotten around that she was available for such transactions. So once an interested adolescent got in touch with her, 
She would bring them into the woods in a nearby ravine where there were these rudimentary forts and bring them inside there where she could fulfill her end of the bargain. Wow. Again, this is just, she was just like 12 years old. Wow. Just a baby. Sadly, although she relished in the power she felt over the boys, they had no respect for her, calling her the cigarette bandit or even worse, the cigarette pig, which oh. just breaks my heart. Yeah. I'm picturing, I'm picturing her fully grown, but she's 12, 12, mm-hmm. 12, just a baby. Now, Eileen never identified the cause of her early foray into sex, but it's possible it was a result of her interactions with her brother, Keith. It's unclear when it started, but it could have been when Lowry would put the kids in his home sauna together naked for mm-hmm. hours. Why? To sweat. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, all the kids kind of like. Keith's friends knew they did it. They thought it was weird. They thought there was something going on. What the fuck? That's weird. Yeah. Then to add to all of that, that's the timing that uh, Lowry and Britta decided that they would tell Keith and Eileen that they were their grandparents and that they'd been adopted and that their birth mother had abandoned them. So that's how you would recommend informing them, right? When they're 12? Yeah. And just emphasizing that, you know, that their mother had abandoned them. Uh, yep, and emotionally mm-hmm. unstable with um, escalating criminal behaviors. Correct. You just yeah. yes present it with abandonment and okay. perfect and uh, rejection. Okay. Yes. Check. Excellent. Yes. Surprisingly, with all of that in mind, the this only worsened the siblings' relationships with their grandparents. You don't say. <laughs> so not only were they told that their mother abandoned them, but they weren't allowed to know Diane's identity at all. Only that she'd since remarried and had. Two more kids. Oh. So that she truly had abandoned them. No one was even permitted to discuss Diane at all in the Warnos house. So again, unsurprisingly, Eileen and Keith rebelled, continuing their string of trouble, often running away, hitchhiking, and then being brought back by the police each time. After countless times of opening his door to an officer, Lowry had had enough. He told Eileen and Keith that if they ran away again, he wouldn't let them back in. Sure enough, the next time Eileen was picked up for hitchhiking, she was brought to Juvenile Hall. And she ran away from there, too. Of course. Eileen didn't need to run too far. Although most of the neighborhood was home to responsible adults, one house wasn't. That of Alphonse Podlack and his partner, Dixie. Okay, those are sweet names they to are. be like a criminal hangout. Uh-huh. Uh, they get even better. Alphonse went by Chief, which okay. is great. Chief and Dixie? Yeah. Now, Chief was surprisingly the more normal one. It was Dixie, who was a retired burlesque dancer who hosted underage parties with drugs and alcohol for Eileen and the other kids who hung out at their house. Burlesque. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, that's it? Oh, okay. There's more to it, but... Yeah, no, I know. Okay. Anyway, and Dixie probably sang Mm -hmm. some of that. Mm -hmm. Dixie herself was a drinker and loved to regale her guests with tales of her sexual experiences. Eileen idolized her. Oh, geez, yeah. Not good. No. Chief mostly sat back and watched it all happen, though sometimes the other kids would see him get extra close to Eileen, even visiting the forts in the ravine. No. No, no Chief. No, bad You got chief. Dixie. Yeah. She okay. can dance. Okay, when you say Chief, all I can think of is the Dane Cook skit, where <laughs> yes. he's like, okay, Chief, <laughs> which looks like chef when you don't know how to spell it. <laughs> I think I spelled it right through all this. So. I bet you did. Yeah, thanks. So between this, this experience with Chief and Dixie, Eileen's existing business, if you want to call it that, and Chief's love for guns, the rest of this case is going to come as absolutely no surprise. What a recipe. Mm -hmm. What a recipe for success. Yep. 
Eileen's drug use escalated during this time in addition to her sexual exploits. She had a penchant for downers and loved to combine them with lots and lots of beer. And this combination worsened her aggression, further alienating her from her family and any friends she might have been able to gather. If you're taking downers and drinking, shouldn't you just go to sleep? Yeah, that was not, she would, that made her angrier. Well, because she's angry, she's awake. Just go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) That's the issue. I think you solved it. I think you solved it. God damn. All these murders could have been avoided had she just gone to fucking bed. And yet you guys criticize me for going to bed early. But listen. Saves lives. Saves lives. It saves lives. (laughs) So to add to Eileen's difficulties, tests at school determined that Eileen might have needed glasses and definitely had a hearing impairment. Her troublesome demeanor had already been noted with concerns of more significant diagnoses and recommendations for counseling. Again, not a shocker. Right. Combined with her lower than average IQ, she probably just needed a lot of help, which she could have gotten, but Britta wouldn't address Eileen's hearing problems, and Eileen herself refused any further exams. And this was what, the 60s and 70s now? Mm -hmm. Like, they were not... We've gotten so much better with identifying children's needs and the services that they need. And back then it was just like, oh, you can't hear or you're like, you're an asshole in class, but Mm -hmm. you have a learning disability, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And this was just the diagnosed things and identified, but I'm sure it was much more. She didn't stand a chance. No. With her frequent sexual encounters, it was nearly inevitable that she would find herself pregnant at a young age. Okay. Why is it that people who really shouldn't be having kids or are not in a situation mm-hmm. to have kids are the most fertile? I don't. Well, they're often younger, which, you know, it's a it's a curve. Yes. Um, but that's all I got. I don't know. But still, like, I don't know that Catherine Knight was that young <laughs> and she was so fertile. And when you like, I remember being a teenager, maybe this is TMI, but I remember being a teenager and be like, please don't get pregnant. And you're like praying you don't. And then when you go to get pregnant, you're like, wait, I have like a 72 hour window to get this right. (laughs) Like, how is it that people who use condoms and are on birth control accidentally get pregnant? It's like a, uh, it's like a Jack in the box. You don't know if it's going to happen. You're like kind of, you know, cranking it. (laughs) I can't believe that. I can't say No. Are you cranking it? I don't think that's how babies are made. <laughs> okay. Oh dear. We're going to we're going to let that go. Anyway, you made me blush. Because <laughs> you were like you're cranking it. You're cranking it. It's not how babies it, are it made. It was the It was the eye contact that really made that disturbing through the microphones. Although we did adjust in case anyone's wondering. We did adjust a little bit so we can look at each other to the side of the microphones. No one was wondering. Okay. Anyway, it's unclear who the father was. Eileen's story changed frequently through the years, sometimes saying it was a stranger who raped her, sometimes saying it was the stranger that was actually a friend of Lowry's, sometimes blaming one of the neighborhood boys. Either way, she hid the pregnancy from her grandparents for several months, but understandably so. I probably would have in that situation as well. Yep. When she finally did tell them, Lowry yelled at her, Britta cried, and both of them were just blatantly ashamed of her, offering absolutely no support. They sent her to the Michigan Children's Aid Society, where she gave birth to a baby boy on March 24th, 1971, whom she named Keith after her brother. Aww. Her son was put up for adoption immediately, and then she was sent to the Florence Crittenden Unwed Mother's Home in Detroit. That what? does not sound like a nice place. No, that's quite a name. Yeah. I know, Crittenden. It sounds like it could be bougie. 
but it's not. Well, if it was like the, what's the first name? Florence. If it was like the Florence Crittenden School for, for the girls, Advanced. Or, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, like something like that. But when you're like no, school unwed for mothers. unwed mothers, yeah. it's, yeah. No. So Lowry did eventually let her come home after a while. And Eileen was re-enrolled in high school, but she soon dropped out. She returned to her old habits of rebelling and running away. And Lowry finally kicked her out for good when she was 15. Wow, 15. I'm surprised you let her stay that long. Honestly. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So now without a home, family, or friends, Eileen was truly on her own. She slept in the woods. And by the way, this is in Michigan. So I don't know how that's possible. She did also sleep in abandoned cars, but it seems like that was not enjoyable. We're not talking about Florida or somewhere nice and warm. Oh my God. I lived a very privileged life. I cannot imagine being homeless at 15. How do you feel about camping? (laughs) I went glamping. That I can see. I'm not into the tent life because no. I don't like when my sheets are moist. <laughs> that's fair. That's that's fair. How would you like to not have any sheets? No, exactly. I don't I don't like that. That's why I'm saying I lived a very privileged yeah. life. Like yeah. I'm very sad for her in this yeah. moment. She also honed her skill of hitchhiking, so I guess she got some time where she was in a warmer place. She continued to trade sexual activities in exchange for money and beer. The days must have blended together for her at this point. With the exception of one stark memory, in July of 1971, just months after Lowry had kicked Eileen out for good, her aunt slash sister, Lori had tracked her down with bad news. Britta had passed away at just 54. It turned out that Lori wasn't the only alcoholic in the house because Britta also suffered from the disease and had died of cirrhosis of the liver. I would have thought Britta's favorite beverage was water. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh, that was so good. Took a minute. That I took, took me a, a second because I was like, "Wait, do you think she didn't drink?" Because Lowry drank. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was good. Okay, thank that you. Was good. Thank nice. you. You can go home now. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so, as a dismal aside, if you want to get a picture into how how cruel Lowry was, he did not inform Diane about Britta's death until after the services had occurred. Oh. And worse, he then called her and said, "The funeral is over, and she's been cremated." But I just wanted to let you know that you killed your mother. Okay, that's aggressive. But Mm -hmm. did she deserve to know about her mother when she abandoned the children and then never came back to see them ever? I don't know. Like, did she deserve it? I don't know if they, maybe they talked during that time. I don't know. I have, I don't have information as to whether they were not in communication or were. That just seems really mean. It. Oh, it's definitely very mean. I'm just questioning, you know, they all kind of suck. So I'm just That's questioning it's how true. bad I should feel for each of them. But that is yeah. mean to say to yeah. her. Yeah. But it's, it's also mean to abandon your kids. So I mean, like, it's like, like a I wheel said. of mean. You just spin it and see who's who's selected for that given time. Yeah, it's like a wheel of suffering. Yeah, that sounds better than wheel of mean. <laughs> <laughs> so Larry met his own fate just five years later, committing suicide on March 12th, 1976. Or so says the family. He had started his car in the garage without opening the door, so it seemed like a suicide to them, but it was never confirmed. That's just how they how they assumed he died. The whole family was probably in there holding the door shut. <laughs> really, <laughs> honestly. Eileen did not attend his funeral. No one mourns the wicked. <laughs> <laughs> what you guys won't hear on the final uh, cut of this episode is that Marina, I was already a couple sentences ahead and Marina just so passionately needed to sing that line that she made me go back to that part just for that. So you're welcome, Gremlins. I did. I had to. (laughs) Moving on. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> so while Eileen did not attend the funeral because she was holding a grudge, Keith did not attend either, but not for the same reason. He, he was in jail? No, he oh. was very ill. Oh. He had discovered a lump in his neck, which was diagnosed as cancerous. So the same year, Eileen at least finally seemed to come across some good fortune. She met a man named Louis Fell. He picked her up when, which I just realized how funny that is. Louis Fell, he picked her up. (laughs) (laughs) He picked her up when she was hitchhiking one day and the two almost immediately got married. Okay. That was just one of the things that made this marriage strange. Louis was older than Eileen, like way older. Okay. What we we talk about here. He was 69 and Eileen was 20. That's legal. It's legal. That's a gap. It's a gap. Further, Lewis was extremely successful. He came from a rich family, and his activities included being the president of a yacht club. Very strange match with Eileen. Okay. Now, Eileen's old habits did not work for Lewis. He quickly grew tired of her being out till all hours of the night and coming home drunk every day. When she was home, he was the focus of her aggression and abuse, even beating him with his own cane. (laughs) Okay. How did they meet? Hitchhike. She was hitchhiking and he picked her up. And he just like fell in love with her? Apparently. That is confusing. So I think she can really... Remember that her friends called her Jekyll and Hyde or her, the people that knew her? Right. I think she could turn it on and then would just... It was only for a period of time and then the real her would let loose. Okay, but he he's like a successful, extremely old yacht yeah. club goer. And wasn't she like a mullet wearing hitchhiker? Yeah. I'm just confused yeah. by this. I have no idea pairing yeah it takes all kinds there's someone out there for everybody not for long less than a month after they were married lewis filed a restraining order against eileen and they divorced on july 19th sadly that was two days after keith lost his battle with cancer and died and he was just 21 21 21 i don't know why i was thinking he was like 40 no no because he was only a year older than um than eileen oh that's really very sad. sad Now, this is not a largely significant piece of information, what I'm going to tell you, but since it's grim, it felt appropriate to mention it. I need to know it. Eileen received a $10,000 payout from Keith's life insurance. Oh, we got to include the life insurance. <laughs> I had to mention it. You ha- of course, she was the nothing, beneficiary. Nothing sketchy with that. It was through, he had joined, um, I think, the army, and so it was through, through that. But um, to absolutely no one's surprise, she blew through it in three months. I'm surprised it took her that long. Really? Exactly. I think one of the things she like bought a car and then crashed it and then just left it just wasting her money. The next decade held little better for Eileen. She continued to build her criminal record while blowing around the country like a plastic bag in the wind. Shortly after Keith's death, she found herself in Texas at the doorstep of her biological mother, Diane. Oh, she found her. Apparently. She only managed to last two weeks there before Diane's attempts at rules and reason wore thin on Eileen. She left Texas for Colorado, where she was soon arrested for disorderly conduct under a false name using a stolen driver's license. And when she returned to Colorado three years later in 1977, she racked up two DUI arrests and two other arrests related to weapons offenses. So just racking them up. Okay, so her... Uh, her rap sheet is more pages than your notes. <laughs> yes, even at this point. Okay. These arrests and their corresponding jail time did nothing to change her ways. She was arrested for the same things later that year. Mm-hmm. Apparently having enough of causing trouble in Colorado, Eileen headed for Florida, her preferred home with its other drifters and many biker gang filled dive bars. 
In one such bar, she met a man named Jay Watts in Daytona Beach. At 52, Jay was a kind, if not rough around the edges mechanic, and somehow the two hit it off and were in a casual relationship for several months. That makes more sense to me than the the 70-year-old yacht driver. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. But like all good things in Eileen's life, this too came to an end at her own hand. On May 20th, 1981, she held up a convenience store and was arrested for robbery with a deadly weapon. Upon investigation, it turned out she was also wanted for grand larceny for a theft back in 1979, so she was sentenced to three years in prison down in Florida. She made the best of her time behind bars, putting an ad in the romance section of the paper, despite her continued relationship with Jay, who eventually smartened up and got the hell out of Dodge. (laughs) Through this ad, she met a 47-year-old divorcee named Ed. He was another kind man who enjoyed taking care of others. So when Eileen was released in August of 1983, after serving just 18 months of the three years, she went straight to Washington, D.C. to live with him. Ed was in for quite the experience. Eileen let her full personality loose, again emphasized by her near constant inebriation. Moreover, she told him she was gay and that they would not be having any sex. So she essentially just used him as a free place to stay, often hitchhiking back down to Florida. The foundations of a successful relationship. Exactly. Mm -hmm. After a few months of enduring her chaos, Ed managed to get out from under her by taking her to a mental hospital one day when she was passed out drunk, because that was the only way he could get her there. Okay. After getting out of the hospital, Eileen landed in Florida for good. Her experiences in the panhandle were hardly different than anywhere else. Back to her old ways, she was arrested in Key West for forgery of several stolen checks, but avoided jail time by leaving town and hiding out in Daytona. (laughs) It was there in 1984 that she met a woman named Tony, who seems to be Eileen's first official girlfriend, at least that she spoke of. The two were living a cozy life, according to Eileen, although she was continuing to hitchhike and find men with whom she could trade sex for money. She was also busy breaking as many other laws as possible, In January of 1986, she was pulled over in a stolen car and attempted to run. When she was caught, she said her name was Lori Grody, which is her aunt slash sister's married name. She again skipped out on her hearings. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that's possible, but I guess it's amazing to me that you could just give a false name. And I don't think she had... Yeah, in the 80s? Yeah, we're not that... This is 84. It's not that... Long, I guess it was a while like ago. 40 but, years ago. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but still, I'm pretty sure they were checking IDs still. Anyway, that June, she had been hitchhiking and attempted to rob the driver using a gun she had previously stolen. From Alphonse? Probably. Maybe. I don't know. She stole a lot of things at a lot of times, so <laughs> who knows? Yeah, but it could have been Chiefs. Yeah. Who knows? They were parked at the time, and an officer, this was kind of some bad luck, an officer happened to come over to investigate. He was just out on a routine investigation eileen was arrested still using Lori's name and they connected the dots with her other arrest earlier that year okay. so although she managed to convince them that that was her name she that hurt her she gave it too many <laughs> yeah, times exactly so i'm not sure if eileen illegally avoided jail time again or if it was a short stint or maybe she just managed to delay incarceration but later in 1986 she was out on the town again in daytona now going by the name Lee as a nickname for Eileen. Mm -hmm. Now that's the name she used primarily for the next period in her life. So that's what I will refer to her as going forward. She had since broken up with Tony, but she wasn't alone for long. In a place called the Zodiac Bar, she met a 24-year-old woman named Tyra Moore in 1986. 
As during her relationship with Tony, Lee continued to pick up men while hitchhiking. But Tyra, who went by Ty, didn't seem to care. In fact, she ended up quitting her job and relied on Lee for income. Okay. Ty could also hold her own against Lee's aggression, both verbally and physically. So the two were really a good match. (laughs) So instead of both of them just stop being aggressive towards each other, they just matched each other's levels. Okay. Now Ty wouldn't instigate. She was, she was, she let Lee be in control, but she could hold her own and kind of protect herself. Okay. Yeah. It's what you want in a partner. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you're equal. (laughs) So despite Lee's ability to make money, she and Ty continued to live as drifters. They would go from motel to motel or live out in the woods as Lee had done in her younger years. But at least they were in Florida, so it was a little warmer. My cousins owned a motel on the Daytona Beach Strip, I think, back in the 80s. (gasps) I wonder if Eileen stayed there. Oh, it's possible. She was jumping around right in that area. Wouldn't that be spooky? That's crazy. That would be interesting. Ooh, so interesting. That would be a grim fact. (laughs) That would be the grimmest of facts. Yeah. Let's just make it so, guys. Oh my gosh, can you believe it? Anyway, in 1989, Ty and Eileen, or Lee, found themselves in Clearwater, Florida, which also happened to be the home of Richard Charles Mallory. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Richard. He was born on October 18th, 1938, in Palm Harbor, Florida. Briefly married, Richard spent most of his adult life single and paying for company. He owned an electronics repair shop in Florida and used his income to frequent topless bars and pick up women for sex. He looked harmless enough with gray hair, a mustache, and glasses. He stood at 5'11", 170 pounds, and had hazel eyes. He was attractive enough to manage a year-long relationship with a woman named Jackie Davis, who was equally wholesome with floral dresses and her own glasses. Her own glasses? Yeah. I I was trying to, you know, she had glasses too. (laughs) (laughs) I realized how weird, I (laughs) not like drinking glasses. No, but I just, you're like. It was a weird sentence. I get it. I'm like, who else's glasses would she be wearing? (laughs) I just meant like she had glasses too. That's sweet. (laughs) I do. <laughs> Listen, I was. This is a whole paragraph describing people that I was trying to make not creepy, but I think I had the opposite effect here. She was wearing her own glasses <laughs> for now. She t- <laughs> <laughs> she took them off a corpse later. <laughs> Jackie is fine woman. She's a fine woman. Okay, she's <laughs> she's in floral dresses wearing her own her own glasses. <laughs> All right. It wasn't that. Okay. It was that weird. It tickled me. It tickled me. Appearances aside, (laughs) Richard was not as innocent as one would think. While he was involved with Jackie, he also began dating another woman named Nancy who broke it off when she learned she was the other woman. He was also spending far beyond his means, racking up a $4,000 debt on his rent. In addition to a penchant for women, he also liked to drink and smoke. And despite his generous tips, he could become aggressive. Sometimes a little too aggressive. Back in 1958, when he was just 19, Richard had served jail time related to a rape. He had broken into a woman's home and attempted to assault her, but when she resisted, he ran. In his trial, he pled insanity and was put in a psychiatric facility for four years, having been convicted of housebreaking with intent to commit rape and assault. Also, what the fuck? Did he not think she was going to resist? No kidding. She'd just be like, oh, wow. It's my lucky night. Right. No, I don't. These fucking criminals. Yeah, exactly. But on the night of November 30th, 1989, Richard was alone. He was self-pitying as Jackie had finally grown tired of his lifestyle and broken up with him. 
To soothe his pain, he took a ride towards Daytona to look for some company. He didn't let anyone know where he was going. He was a private man. On his way, he encountered Lee on her familiar hitchhiking route. He picked her up without a second thought. It was just a woman after all. But he would later come to regret that decision. Mm-hmm. He was imbibing and encouraged her to join. He offered her some pot, which she declined and settled for a vodka and orange juice, which I find hysterical because I'm trying to picture stirring a screw. It's a screwdriver, right? Mm-hmm. Like, while driving. Also, who drinks screwdrivers at night? In the car. It, it was just a strange thing to have on hand, I that's, guess, was my reaction to that's that. That's a breakfast drink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Eventually, they stopped so he could buy her some beer, which she far preferred. Mm-hmm. Putting more miles behind them, Richard eventually pulled off the highway and suggested they talk a while. Picking up the hint, Lee asked him if he wanted to help her make some money. The two came to an agreement on services and a price list around five that morning. Way past my bedtime. I'm waking up at that time. Yeah, I also thought you were going to say like $5 and I was going to be like, girl, you're worth way more than that. She, it was not, she was not good at negotiating her prices. It was like 20 bucks here, $10 there. No. Um, Which she would then in later interviews be very offended when people said that, saying she was worth much more. So agreed. Okay. But anyway, we digress. We do. In the midst of their engagement, with Richard still in the driver's seat, Lee stepped out of the car on the passenger's side, fully naked. Before Richard realized what was happening, she leaned in and grabbed a gun out of her bag in the footwell. He had barely spotted the gun, but tried to grab it from her. He was too late. She shot, easily accurate at such close range. The bullet went through his right arm and into his side through his left lung. Blood exploded into the seat. Alive but stunned, he tried to get out of the car to get away from Lee. She went around the car and met him on the other side, shooting him again in the stomach. Oh my God, and she's naked right now, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. He surely wasn't a threat to her at this point, but she shot again and again. None of the bullets caused an immediate death. Instead, Richard died a slow, agonizing death, effectively suffocating over nearly 30 minutes. Yeah, on his own blood, too. Mm-hmm. And Lee just watched. Once he had stopped breathing for good, Lee pickpocketed him, taking his wallet, which had his ID and some cash. She then found some carpeting and the debris scattered around the pull-off to put over his body, got back in the car, and drove off. It was self-defense. That's what she says. Lee then took Richard's car back to the apartment she was renting with Ty and told her that they needed to speed up the move they had been planning. And by speed up, she meant, pack your shit, we're leaving today. (laughs) Literally. Put it in the car. We're using this car to move it. Casual. So they used Richard's car to move all their belongings to the new place. Ty did not question where Lee had gotten the car, but Lee told her she was borrowing it from a friend. Once they had dumped everything into the new apartment, Lee took off saying she had to return the car. Ty never saw it again. It didn't take police long to find the abandoned car and identify its owner. That same day that Lee hit it down a dirt road, another officer just out on a routine patrol spotted it. Looking around in the brush nearby, he also found Richard's empty wallet and a few other belongings. Inside the car, they saw the blood in the upholstery in the driver's seat and two cups with some residue, probably the vodka and orange juice. That screwdriver. Their suspicions were high, to say the least. It was easy to run the VIN and find Richard's name, and they tried to get a hold of him. No luck, obviously. 
They would realize why when on December 13th, two men out for a walk found his decaying body five miles away across the river from where his car had been left. Immediately reporting their discovery to the police, investigators arrived to a disturbing site. Despite the fact that it had only been a couple of weeks since his death, Richard's body was badly decomposed. He was lying face down with his ankles crossed, fully clothed, though they noted that his pockets had been turned inside out and his jeans were fully zipped. They also observed that his belt was buckled, although it was twisted and off-center. When they turned him over, his dentures fell from his face, which was essentially just skull um, down to his collarbones. How did he decompose so quickly? I think Florida. Okay, yeah. That being said, it was December, so Um, I don't know if it's drier or wetter or what at that time, Um, but it also seemed that the carpet that she had used to cover him protected some part of his body, and it decomposed worse where it was exposed. Okay. Now, they had already suspected it was the owner of the car they found, but they were able to formally ID him by matching his fingerprint from a previous DUI arrest he had had. But that was really all they had. Richard didn't have a wife or close friends who they could check in with to see what he had been up to. They went to his shop to see if there was any evidence of foul play. Nothing. Then they went to his apartment, and although nothing was disturbed, they did find a Christmas card from his sister, who was then able to put them in contact with Jackie, his now Mm ex-girlfriend. Jackie gave the most helpful lead. She was able to tell them what was likely in the car with him when he was murdered. Further digging throughout the next month uncovered Richard's activities the night he died. He had paid for dances at a club called 2001 Odyssey, which is a great name for a club. The two dancers that he paid for were Chastity and Danielle. Those are also classic. That one I know. Not so much Danielle. No. Chastity. Chastity, Sorry definitely. Sorry to any of our Daniels and Chastities. I know. We love you and we respect you. We do. Now, since these women were the last known to have seen Richard before he died, detectives obviously wanted to talk to them. Danielle was given a polygraph and she passed it and she was exonerated. I'm sure there was more conversation to that, but that's all I know. <laughs> we know how reliable polygraphs <laughs> exactly. are anyways. Now, they weren't able to get a hold of Chastity, who had left for South Carolina, Working with what they had, detectives talked to her boyfriend, Doug, and the night manager at the club. The night manager said that when she saw Chastity at Christmas, Chastity had said some concerning things. Like, I've got to get out of town. I've seen and done everything now. I'm in big trouble. Huh. Suspicious. Worse, when detectives talked to Doug, who was now her ex-boyfriend, by the way, he broke down and said Chastity told him she killed Richard. Is Chastity a stage name? Is it Lee? Chastity was looking pretty guilty. I'll, I'll agree with that. Okay. In addition to witness statements, she had a criminal history and had at one point had a gun. A warrant was issued for her arrest on April 5th, and she was finally brought in when she was arrested for an unrelated charge almost two months later. After interviewing her and deliberating, it was decided that there was not enough physical evidence to connect her to the murder, and the charges were dropped. It would be another two years before Lee was successfully connected to the murder, and it will be another week before I tell you how. <laughs> wow, that's interesting about uh, chastity, is though. It interesting? It, yeah, is. it is. It's. I have no idea why she would say... Like, you could twist some of the other things that she told the night manager to be unrelated, but why would you say... I mean, I guess maybe... Maybe she was having some trouble and 
people falsely confess yeah. to stuff all the time. Like maybe she was on drugs or something yeah. or had like a mental break and right, right. couldn't remember a part of like a, that piece of a night and or she was attention. like, I, I like, must have done it. I don't know when Doug broke up with her, but maybe it was an attention thing or something. I don't know. Okay. And last joke. Uh, every time I hear the name Doug, I think of a hangover where they're like, Doug, 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 Doug. See, I still think of the cartoon Doug. Oh, yesteryear. It was a great cartoon. It was. Yeah. Not as good as Rocco's Modern Life. So I went on a binge listening to just all, uh, or to looking at all the old cartoons and. So good. It was great. It was great. Also, I realized when I was watching them, I probably shouldn't have been because there's a They're lot of stuff weird. in there. Yes. So, like um, Ren and Stimpy. Yeah, that's a really Super bad cartoon. Super weird. It's really. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, hey, if you're, if you're enjoying Grimm, despite all of our asides and digressions and singing. You know you love us. Make sure you're getting the most in between episodes. You can find us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast and on Facebook. Just search Grim A True Crime Podcast. Or even better, you can subscribe to our Patreon by searching Grim A True Crime Podcast on the Patreon app or website. You can send us an email at Grim Crime Podcast. Are you sensing a theme here? At gmail.com. I should specify that's not part of the email. <laughs> Grimgrimepodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> and that's also where you can send us case suggestions or DM us or text us or whatever you want. We love the suggestions. Wherever you do listen, please rate us or even better, leave us a written review. We just screenshotted one today, actually. We did. It was an upgraded review. Yeah. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. To- her too miney. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was very thoughtful and very nice. And it we was. appreciate it. And literally it makes our day. It does. As we always say. It does. So thanks for being here. And remember, listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim.